Hey, podcasters, Tom here. Do you like knowing all the news you never needed to know? Well, me too. Everyone does. And every week, we get together on the Winner Gets Nothing podcast where we break down the weirdest news stories of the week and make jokes over some beers. It's a podcast for people who like to have fun and be misinformed. So tune in, crack a beer, pack a bowl, and party on with the Winner Gets Nothing podcast. Oh, and leave the kids at home. We get pretty explicit. everyone, this is the Controller Disconnected Podcast. I am your host, Matthias Carnero. Continuing from the last episode, today we'll continue chugging along on the hype train for the Resident Evil 3 remake. As a Christmas present for myself last year, I bought the Resident Evil 2 remake, and after going through some of my backlog first, I finally played it and completed it during the month of February. I liked it a lot, and I have some good things to say about it. But I also have some other not-so-good things to say. And I'm gonna say them. Like, right now. On this episode. Let's go to the part where I say the things. I won't be spending any time talking about the history of the development of the original game, the 1.5 version and things like that. This will be more strictly about just the remake itself and my impressions with some comparisons to what I remember of the original game. With that being stated, let's begin. Resident Evil 2. The first big elephant in the room that everybody had to talk about was the changing camera position. As you may know, the original game had fixed camera angles that showed only portions of the room the player was in at any time. Once the player character moved far along a part of the room, the camera would change and show a different but still fixed perspective. While some may find this overly restricted and quote-unquote bad, other people argue that this is exactly the point of the fixed cameras. Letting the player see only a small portion of the rooms at any time heightens the anxiety and fear that the game induces in them. And because you can't see very well, surprise attacks from zombies and monsters also are more effective. All of this is gone in the remake. The camera has been changed to a third-person perspective, behind the characters. And it can also be rotated around them, allowing the player to keep a better eye on their surroundings by looking around on all sides. Players shouldn't feel as lost as in the original anymore, but this is balanced by the claustrophobic environments which are made up in large part by tight corridors and very dark lighting, the only illumination most often coming from a flashlight. The normal zombies have also been made tougher to kill, even though they move slowly like they used to before Resident Evil jumped the proverbial shark. Headshots are no longer guaranteed to instantly kill them, but it does certainly help. And if you're lucky, you'll pop their heads with the right shot and they'll fall undead on the spot. The proper trick this time is to shoot them in the legs so that they'll fall to the ground and then make a run for it before they get back up or start crawling around after you. But you also need to be careful and not shoot around everywhere like you fancy yourself a John Rambo type. Accuracy is much lower in this remake, so the proper thing to do is to line up your shots carefully and make them all count. 
especially with the more powerful weapons as their ammo can be a lot more scarce. That's only just scratching the surface of the changes, but I'll talk about them further when discussing the different story scenarios. In my playthroughs, I did the Leon A and Claire B scenarios, so keep that in mind whenever I mention each protagonist's side of the story. The game starts with both characters stopping by a gas station outside of Raccoon City. This is where they first realize that something is terribly wrong and that mutated undead creatures are all over the place attacking them. This was changed from them meeting in a diner inside the city in the original game, and was also made into a playable sequence. It's a great way to introduce players to the new aspects of this remake. The camera, the controls, the lighting details, zombie and gun mechanics. It's all pretty well encapsulated in this one part so that players feel ready when confronting the monsters in the rest of the game. Both Leon and Claire manage to escape to the city in a police car, but by the time they get there, everything has already gone to hell. They stop by a barricade but are attacked by zombies. And on top of all that, a tanker truck whose driver was infected by a zombie bite comes barely into them. Fortunately, they manage to escape the zombies before the truck crashes into their car, but they get separated from each other when the tanker explodes. And this is where the main part of the game begins for each of them. Leon makes his way through some back alleys and enters the Raccoon Police Department building through the front, while Claire makes it in through a side entrance on a makeshift graveyard also in front of the RPD. After getting in trouble exploring the police station, Leon is rescued by his superior, Lieutenant Marvin Brenna, and told to find a way to exit the building through a secret passage that one of the officers found before. Claire also makes her way to the reception area and ends up having to do the same thing. And here is where we find one of the many holes in the plot which are supposedly happening at the same time on both sides. Both protagonists are looking for the shield to open the fountain passage in the reception area, but they never run into each other in the station at any point in the game, unless you count the part where they meet just outside in the rain. If you open a passage on one playthrough, you still have to do the same puzzle on the second, which would indicate that the first character managed to find another way through. But we're never told how that happens because the protagonists only meet each other three times over the course of the game, and only once on the police station like I mentioned. I'm not gonna spend too much time talking about this because it's annoying to me and I think it would also be annoying to you who are listening. So back to the game proper then. There are some small changes to the course of events in the station which are supposed to keep fans of the original game on their toes, to make them think that something isn't quite right. Originally, the player would first meet the Laker monster on the hallway on the first floor on the west side of the station. You could even see it crawling along the window before going through the door for the hallway, for extra scariness. The Laker is nowhere to be seen on the first floor in the remake, and you'll find him on one of the upper floors on the west side instead. He is back to his original placement on the second playthrough though, complete with window crawling. The big tyrant Mr. X also makes a big return, and oh boy, he means business this time. This time, he has a hat, and he will get very, very angry if you shoot his hat. But even if you don't, he's still going to punch your head off your body, so the best course of action is to run away. Unless you're a little cheating bastard like me, who paid to unlock the game rewards and had a rocket launcher with infinite ammo from the beginning, which takes down Mr. X with one shot. In that case, just go bang on him and go on your merry way. The guy is relentless in the remake and he won't stop coming after you, so if you're more annoyed and scared at the concept like I was, I suggest doing the same thing. Continuing past the fountain passage, the characters end up in a boiler room and have to fight the mutated William Birkin for the first time. The fight is the same in both scenarios with the difference being the other characters involved outside of the fight, with them being Ada Wong for Leon and Sherry Birkin for Claire. After that, you climb up a ladder and end up in a garage at a station, where things play out differently depending on which character you're playing as. 
For Leon, Ada leaves him behind and he must find a keycard to open the garage shutters. It just so happens that there's a journalist inside the jail on the same floor who has one. But Mr. X stares a hole through the wall behind him and crushes his head with his bare hands before the journalist can give Leon the card. In order to open the jail cell, the player must find two battery cells and insert them in a wall socket beside it. For Claire, the police chief Brian Irons holds her a gunpoint and kidnaps Sherry, leaving Claire stranded in the garage. The shutters are also down for her, and she must also find a keycard as well, but instead of going to the jail, she goes up to Irons' office back in the station. The keycard is locked off inside the little cell in the office, and the player must solve the same wall socket puzzle as the other scenario to open it. A classic case of the same thing, except it's different. Once past that, it's down to the sewers. It's at this point where the perspective switches to the supporting characters of each campaign, though it happens a little earlier for Claire's side. Leon gets shot by Annette Birkin, the wife of William, and Ada goes after her while he recovers. Ada has a gadget called the EMF visualizer, which detects electronic things that can be quote-unquote hacked. It's used to open doors and passages that are otherwise inaccessible, such as the very first time you use it to overload a huge fan to bust it apart and go through a tunnel. Mr. X comes back to knock you out in the sequence, and since I lost my infinite ammo weapons, I actually had to make an effort to stay alive, which was quite a change of pace. For Claire's side, you take control of Sherry and have to escape the orphanage Chief Irons imprisoned her in. Sounds easy enough, until Irons finds out and tries to stop you. With some quick maneuvering, you get the key to the front door and unlock it, only to find out that it's chained from the outside. Fortunately, well, as fortunate as it can be regarding the circumstances, the G-Monster that William Birkin turned into attacks Sirens and saves you before he can do anything, but not before he inoculates Sherry with a strain of the G-Virus. Once you take control of the protagonists again, it's down to the sewers for real. I would argue that Leon has it a lot worse in his side of the sequence, since he has to run away from a giant crocodile who is only stopped by a conveniently placed huge gas pipe that you shoot at to explode it to bits. Claire faces no such thing outside of seeing a little baby G-Monster explodes from Chief Irons' chest. I saw the same version of this scene from the original game and I have to say that I prefer the way that it was made before. His body gets torn apart from almost half from his shoulder down to his waist. It's a super gruesome sight. In the remake it looks like a bad version of an alien chestburster. Back to the sewers, the sequence plays along the same regardless of the protagonist. The supporting character finds themselves trapped in a trash chute of sorts by Annette and it's up to you to unlock the door to get to them by finding the missing chess pieces from the door switches. The company who designed these tours was really into chess, so that's why the unusual choice. If it were up to me, I would have made the pieces into Formula One helmets or little wrestling figures. This is a mostly uninteresting trot back and forth through the sewers, but there is one truly disturbing sight during this part that I have to describe. During the Down and Dirty tour, you'll come across what seems like a big reservoir filled with trash. Fair enough, there's trash everywhere in this place, you may think to yourself. You take the ladder down into the reservoir and make your way across, since on the other side lie two more of the chess pieces that you need. You walk around the dirty water until you'll see a little G-Monster baby pop out from the wall. This doesn't look right, they're sticking to walls? You don't think much else of it, and you climb up onto a small pile of trash to go through to the other side of it. There are a few dead zombies on top of it that you may stop to look at. This may be when you realize you're not stepping on trash. The trash seems like it's moving a little bit. There's something pulsating, like a beating heart or a circulatory system, pumping blood across this large thing. It's... alive? You get down from it on the other side and stop to look at the wall. 
you notice the same thing on it, a pulsating glob of disgusting, fleshy stuff. And then you realize, it's not just on the amount of trash, or on that part of the wall. It's all across the wall. It's spread across the dirty water. It's on the ceiling. The entire room is some sort of mutated thing created by the G-Virus. The first time I realized this, I never wanted to run away from a place so fast before. Just passing by this place in-game is enough to drive chills from my spine. I really have to commend the developers for crafting such a terrifying room. Congratulations to those bastards for creeping me out so well. Oh, I think this is a good time as I need to stop and recover from that horrific sight and listen to some advertisements. Hang in there, the nightmare is almost over. I'll be right back. Welcome back! After getting all the chess pieces needed to open the door and placing them in the right spots, it's time to rescue your partner. But not before having to turn on the power to the door separating you two. Fine, whatever, the power breaker is pretty close by. You go in there, switch on the power, and then BAM! William Birkin punches through the ceiling asking for more trouble. The boss fight doesn't happen inside the room though. You both go somewhere else more open with a huge crate in a container that you need to use to knock the monster off. Once he is done with, you meet back with your partner and it's down to the Umbrella Laboratory. The protagonists have different reasons to go there, but it's the same place nonetheless. Leon goes with Ada to find the last sample of the G-Virus, and Claire goes with Sherry to find a cure for the inoculated virus that I mentioned before. We're now getting very close to the end of the game, but it's no time to relax. Inside one of the sections of what is called the nest, You'll end up in a greenhouse of sorts looking for security cleaners to get to the section where the G-Virus sample slash cure is housed in. This is where a new enemy is introduced, a plant-based monster that can kill you with one hit if you're not careful. You know the expression, kill it with fire? That is exactly what you need to do to these monsters, it's the only way to kill them for good. Fortunately, by this stage of the game, you should be equipped with a proper tool for the job. A flamethrower for Leon, and a grenade launcher with flame rounds for Claire. Except for the very end of the game, the plantzillas don't show up anywhere outside of this section, so don't fret your little heart thinking about them. So, you make your way to the other side of the nest, get the G-Virus sample slash cure, and go back to your partner, right? Not so fast. Big Bad Birkin is back, baby! <laughs> yes, you have to fight him one more time before going back. Get that done with, and it's time to get the hell out of dodge with your partner before the self-destruct sequence brings everything down on your head. Unfortunately for Leon, Ada is killed before the both of them can make their escape. Well, she is quote-unquote killed, since it's well known she shows up multiple times again over the course of the series, but for this game at least, it's assumed that she is dead for good. During their escape, Leon and Claire actually meet and talk to each other again through a screen communicator. I don't understand why they had such little contact with each other in the remake, when they speak much more often in the original game. Outside of the start of the game, and now at the end, their only communication in the remake is through small written notes, which could even be missed if someone doesn't pay enough attention when playing. But anyway, Claire lets Leon know that there's a train she's using to get out of the facility, so he tries to catch up to her and not get left behind. While going down a cargo elevator, Mr. Axe comes back for him with all his might and force. His power level is over 9000 and he's going for broke. Meanwhile, as she's getting the train ready to go, William Birkin comes back for one last go at Claire. Both protagonists overcome the odds and defeat their respective monsters and proceed to escape. Claire gets the train running and it proceeds to chug away from the crumbling facility. 
Leon just so happens to catch up with her when Sherry as the train is passing by and jumps on along. In her first run for the game, this is where it ends. Leon, Claire and Sherry meet inside the train and they supposedly escape unharmed from the facility and the city. But then you hear an ominous growl before the credits roll. Something feels off. To see the true ending to this story, you must complete the game again on the second run. The three survivors meet up as usual, but they hear and feel something strange on the train. Claire goes back for the other train cars to investigate. They are oddly littered with ammo which should be enough indication of what's about to happen. Sure enough, the last mutation of G. Birkin comes back for one final fight. There's nothing resembling a human form in this thing, it's just a giant pile of flesh with sharp teeth trying to swallow you. After dispensing your whole arsenal into it, the monster is incapacitated for a while. Enough for Leon and Claire to detach the train engine from the rest of the cars and leave Birkin behind to burn in the self-destruction explosion. And so it ends. The survival horror nightmare is over. And the sun rises over the horizon as Leon, Claire and Sherry walk along a road leading away from Raccoon City. But the fight against the pharmaceutical company responsible for this zombie outbreak is not over. It's up to them to take out Umbrella. Looking back on this wild ride, I can't think of a much better way to adapt the original Resident Evil 2 to our modern gaming palettes. Unlike the original Resident Evil remake, the developers tried to give players a new experience while maintaining the spirit of the older game, painting our experiences with a new coat of paint and reigniting the fear that we crave to feel from the series. If I were a younger man, I wouldn't have paid attention to this game, but since I became a bigger fan over the years and seeing the praise it got in the year of its release, I decided to give it a try. I can take a few scares here and there and I actually started to think it's good to feel these things since it tickles my emotions more than usual. And now I'm hooked and I want more. I can already picture myself getting Resident Evil 7, which I also still haven't played, and the Resident Evil 3 remake after it's released. I don't know if I'll jump all the way back to the original games, but another go at the first one's remake is definitely in order at least. There weren't many downsides to the game in my opinion, aside from the parts where I kept running around the place having to pick up things to solve puzzles, sometimes with Mr. X breathing down my neck. It was actually worse on my second playthrough because for some reason I kept missing this one door that I had to open with the bolt cutter and past that door was an item that I needed to use to progress through the game. I spent around an hour running around the police station looking for where to go until I gave up and looked up where the item was and I felt like a massive idiot for missing something so obvious to me on my first time playing. And one last thing before this is over, if you want to feel real anxiety and fear while playing this, then just go and try to walk around the liquor. They can't see you in the game, but they have ears sharper than tacks, so any quick movements will have them jumping at you. You can avoid them by walking very slowly around them, but it's one of the most harrowing things you can do to yourself because you're aware at any moment that one slip of your finger could mean certain death. Something else that I didn't mention before either, but there's a hardcore mode available which brings back the increments from the original games. There are no autosaves in this mode, so the only way to save is by using the ribbons on a typewriter like old times. Also, enemies are much stronger and ammo is a lot more scarce, but that's a given, I think. I'm not that much of a masochist to try for myself, but feel free to torture yourself if you so desire. This might now seem like the end, but there's still some things left unsaid about Resident Evil 2, and I will say them in the next episode. 
so make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out. Until then, spend some quality time playing this great game. And that does it for this episode of Controller Disconnected. Thank you very much for listening, and please leave us a kind review on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. You can find an easy link to both in the show notes, or you can go straight to ratethispodcast.com slash condisconnected. Please subscribe wherever you may be listening, and we are available on all podcast platforms. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at the handle at condisconnected. And last but not least, please share this episode with someone you know. Word of mouth goes a long way to helping us grow. Hey, that rhymed. Once again, thank you for listening. I am Matthias Carnero, and I will talk to you soon.